everyone. I'm your host, Tom Shaughnessy, and welcome back to Chain Reaction, a research-driven podcast that's a part of Delphi Digital. If you're not on Delphi's research portal, you're missing out on the critical analysis read by the top minds in the crypto space, so be sure to check it out. One quick housekeeping item, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any security or token or to make any financial decisions. I may personally hold tokens mentioned on the podcast, and you can view our show notes below for our complete disclosures. With that out of the way, I wanted to give a quick shout out to our wonderful sponsor, eToro. The best way to be smart about trading crypto is to use the smartest trading platform. eToro is one of the largest trading platforms in the world, with over $1 trillion in trading volume on the platform per year. U.S. customers can trade the most popular crypto assets with extraordinarily low fees. And if you're not ready to trade yet, you can practice on the platform with their virtual trading feature. Best of all, you can connect with 11 million other eToro traders around the world to discuss trading, charts, and all things crypto. You can create an account at b.tc slash eToro reaction or click the link below in your show notes. Just scroll down on your phone, click the eToro link, and it'll bring you right to their website. With that, let's jump into the episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Today I'm thrilled to have on Vitalik Buterin, who's the founder of Ethereum. I saw his post this morning on ETH2 shard chain simplification proposal, DM'd him, and he agreed to come on on extremely short notice. So no prep time here, but hoping we're going to have an awesome episode. Vitalik, it's great to have you on. I, I personally think after reading the post that Ethereum's at kind of a pivotal moment here between ETH 2.0 and your post seems sooner than most expect and also optimistic roll-up. So Vitalik, it's great to have you on. How are you? It's uh, good. Uh, good, to be, uh, good to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming on. And I guess, what are the, what's the overview of this post before we go into the meat of it? Like, what is, what is this post covering here? Um, basically, it's a proposal to uh, reform uh, phase one. So this is the part of uh, Ethereum 2.0 that uh, does sharding. And the key idea here is basically that it kind of changes the architecture where before you had a beacon chain and a bunch of shard chains and these uh, chains would only talk to each other kind of once in a while, like you know, once per epoch, every, about every six minutes. But in the new proposal, instead of uh, talking to each other one every six minutes, like basically the idea is that almost every shard block would get immediately included in the beacon chain. And so all of the different chains kind of talk to each other and kind of cross-link between each other pretty much every slot. And in the post talks about how that gets implemented and what are the benefits of this approach. Gotcha. So, I mean, in the past, how hard was it to figure out cross-shard communication? So it was definitely hard. Um, the main challenge here is um, that, like in the previous proposal, every shard would only crosslink into the beacon chain once every six minutes, and most users are not going to be willing to accept six-minute delay times for like moving their coins between shards to participate in applications. And so this basically required kind of complicated layer two machinery for doing things like optimistic state. Um, which basically means that like you have proof that some coins are going to move into some other shard, but then you can essentially create a state object in the other shard that represents kind of the promise to get those coins when they do arrive, and then you can trade that promise. And 
the there's this machinery around this stuff that started you know getting pretty complicated and we started thinking about fee markets about around this and there's a lot of complexity involved in that and the kind of big core of the advantages of this new proposal is that you don't have to do any of that anymore right because with uh, this approach Basically, all shards talk to all other shards every slot by default natively. And so there's just so much uh, simplification of, uh, of higher level infrastructure that can happen as a result. So Vitalik, just to simplify this down for people, I mean, basically what you're saying is that we don't need any complex cross-shard communication type setups or new projects or protocols to make that happen because natively you guys are going to shoot to enable native communication between all these shards at the protocol layer. Exactly. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And just to go back, I mean, are you still going to have the beacon chain or is does this proposal get rid of the beacon chain? It still has the beacon chain. The beacon chain still has a central role as being the chain where uh, hashes of uh, all of these shard blocks and cross uh, or attestations for all these shard blocks kind of get included, and it's the thing through which uh, all of the shard chains can talk to each other. So it does um, retain that function. Gotcha. That's that's helpful. So the other things that you guys are doing are you reduce the shard count from a thousand twenty four to sixty four, and then you increase the shard block size from the 16 target and 64 cap to 128 target and 512 cap. Why did you guys do this? Like, Could you do, still do this proposal with more shards and a lower block size, or, or is that not possible? Uh, yeah, good question. Uh, so basically, the challenge here is that if we're going to do a, a um, at crosslink or, a, I guess, you, we could maybe just call it like a kind of committee attestation of every shard block going into every beacon block. Then the number of uh, committee attestations that you need to have goes up by basically a factor of uh, 32. Uh, we're also uh, considering decreasing the block length from uh, 64 to 32. And so if you don't change any other parameters, then the amount of overhead that you have on shards, uh, or sorry, on the beacon chain would basically increase by a factor of 32. And that has a, a bunch of, uh, of not very desirable consequences. Like, basically, we really care about uh, the beacon chain being something that you know you can run and that average people will be able to run clients for without it being a kind of this really complicated and bulky thing that makes your computer's battery drain more much more quickly. And so, yeah, like having a huge amount of overhead on the beacon chain is like not really a good thing. And and so we reduce the shard counts to kind of alleviate most of the consequences of that. But then in order to avoid a scalability dropping, we increase the size of a shard block to compensate. And in the increase in size of a shard block, and I actually think it's something that we probably should have done already. Like the reason is that there's a bunch of overhead that's going to happen in shard networks because of, like for example, attestation aggregation. Uh, regardless, and having the shard block size be something that's much smaller than the other overhead that people are going to be facing already doesn't really make sense. And so we don't actually lose that much, but uh, scalability-wise, or 
rather just kind of ab ability to run a node wise uh, from increasing the shard block size from a 16 to 128. I mean, you're talking about beacon chain overhead. What does this all mean for state? Because I mean, the I guess the high level view is that if you increase transaction throughput, you're increasing the amount of data stored on the network. Does this come into play here? Or is that, you know, a different issue that has to be solved outside of this post? So there's two kinds of state, right? There's beacon chain state, and beacon chain state continues to be uh, fairly compact, continues to be uh, under a gigabyte. And then there is a user level state. And the architecture that we've been going with all along is basically kind of protocol level, almost uh, statelessness, where user level state is, uh, is something that like, does exist obviously and users have their accounts but it's not something that the protocol itself directly recognizes i think the protocol itself only recognizes i have 32 byte state hashes of execution environments and the concept of a state that's bigger than that is this kind of higher level concept that these uh, execution environment contracts can implement and the state would basically just have to continue continually be proven with merkle proofs and the goal of this setup is that it basically just simplifies things for validators because validators would not have to worry about like constantly downloading and re-downloading different state branches. And it uh, also means that, like for example, validators don't have to worry about things like disk I.O. and all of the huge inefficiencies we've seen about that historically. And instead, you know, all of the questions about state and like state rent, for example, get kind of pushed up to being more of a, a client-side problem. And, and that does uh, kind of also have a lot of other benefits in terms of like stabilizing the protocol and its economics. Gotcha. So it sounds like you're greatly improving the experience for validators. Is that is that the case? Yeah, it's definitely something we care a lot about. Just looking at the timeline here, I mean, I read the post and it looks like you said that this is something that'll enable ETH2 to be used sooner. Is this something that plugs into a specific phase in the roadmap, or is this something that is still working forward? Because I, I know cross-shard communications were slated towards the later uh, portions of ETH 2.0, but I wasn't sure where this fits in. Yeah, so the proposal itself is um, largely phase one. Um, so phase one being a sharded data, phase two being sharded computation. Um, and when you just have data, like there's no such thing as like cross shard communication or intra shard communication because shard blocks like aren't even representing communication. They're just blobs of data that are whatever proposers want them to be. And in phase two, that's when uh, we have to actually add in all of the infrastructure for running uh, smart contracts, running execution environment code, figuring out and cross shard ETH transfers and all of these different issues. So all of that complexity is uh, something that needs to exist, though even that is enough less than the complexity we, we would have need to have before. And it is something that still can kind of comfortably wait until phase two. Gotcha. Understand that. So, I mean, there's a bunch of layer twos floating around. I mean, everything from connects to scale, and you know, there's a lot of recent uh, discussion on optimistic rollups. You know, do we need that when we have a working sharded layer one blockchain like like ETH 2.0? Like, do we still need those, and are they will they still work with the architecture you're proposing here? 
Uh, yeah, so optimistic rollups uh, actually complement uh, sharded blockchains really well. And the reason is that we're moving toward this uh, kind of relatively expensive computation, relatively cheap data architecture. And we're doing this kind of in part because we've been realizing more and more that data actually is pretty cheap and computation actually is pretty yeah, relatively expensive. And also we just have to kind of push things that way because stateless client um, architectures inherently require these kind of larger Merkle witnesses. Um, but one of the benefits of this is that optimistic rollups can get a huge amount of uh, scalability uh, gain, right? So for example, if we kind of analyze the numbers as I've uh, kind of set them out, right? 128 kilobyte blocks every kind of six seconds, uh, 64 shards, then 128 kilobytes times 64 is um, eight megabytes divided by six, sec uh, six seconds uh, gets you to about like 1.3 megabytes uh, per second. And at the 1.3 megabytes uh, per second level, like if we look at scalability with regular transactions, with stateless clients and witnesses, that you might be talking about a thousand bytes. And so that might be like in the low thousands. If you knock it down to 500 bytes, then you know, you've got it to like the 3000 levels. And if uh, we can get uh, the scalability of our block size of shard chains up and then maybe get the shard counts up at some points, then we can increase that a bit more. So like, it's high, but it's not like, extremely high. But if you look at optimistic or roll up on top of this, then 1.3 megabytes per second divided by like 12 bytes a transaction basically gives you 100K TPS. And this is on an architecture that'll basically exist next year, right? So that's powerful. Like, and another reason why it's extremely powerful is that if we have ETH1 to ETH2 connections, then you could have an optimistic rollup setup where the computation, kind of the policing side of it happens on the ETH1 and the data is on ETH2. And so potentially like even as early as ETH 2.0 phase one, like we'll be able to have rollups with super high scalability. So, you know, the scalability gains of sharding in rollups definitely multiply. Yeah, that's incredible. So, I mean, it seems like the tech around Ethereum between ETH 2 with your post and then rollups is really driving, you know, a huge increase in throughput. But it seems like, I don't know if the market has reacted to it yet, kind of on the, the discussion side. This seems like super interesting. And, you know, what's your take on this in the grand scheme of Ethereum? Like, this seems like a very pivotal time for, for the protocol. I definitely think it is. And I've been uh, ranting about how important scalability is uh, since uh, 2015. And I'm incredibly happy that the yeah, proof of stake and uh, sharding uh, dreams are actually finally happening and, yeah yeah and even optimistic rollup by itself right it's something that's kind of less impressive than optimistic rollup times sharding because it only gets you to a mere three thousand tra transactions per second oh no how slow but that's still a kind of 100 factor increase over what we have today and it's probably going to be enough for most applications until kind of full on the 2.0 sharding really becomes available so, yeah, and it really feels like we're finally overcoming uh, all of the bottlenecks that we've had all along. You know, privacy, finally have uh, privacy-preserving applications uh, 
popping up on chain scalability will finally have optimistic rollup and sharding and proof of stake finally you know, getting a very close to release security smart contracts wallets on the up and up it's definitely looking very bright and definitely i think in a way that a lot of people are not realizing yeah i definitely agree on kind of noticing this inflection point for sure and just to dive into the numbers you gave earlier i mean the so basically if all goes well you think that optimistic rollups along with your new proposal could reach 100,000 transactions per second at the high point and a few thousand at the low point within the next year or two i think is that kind of the high level kind of target yeah okay that makes sense and Vitalik, just walking through how this works because we have we have a few you know some more time here. I mean, could you just walk us through like the simple example of how this all works? Like when you have two shard chains, the beacon chain in the middle. It, it's a great graphic on your post, but for those who don't have it, it would just be great to hear the example of kind of how the network kind of moves forward uh, under this new kind of pr- uh, proposal. Sure. Um, so let's say, for example, um, I want to. Send you some ETH, and I'm living on shard number 15, and you're living on uh, shard number 47. And, and uh, you have an account there, I have an account here. What do we do? Right? So, step one, I send a transaction. This transaction gets included in the next block in shard number 15. And because we have EIP 1559, which is, by the way, a totally other, like extremely un- unrelated thing that we uh, should talk about at some point, it's overwhelmingly likely that the transaction gets included in the next block and you don't have to like wait for two, min- two minutes. Uh, and so transaction gets included. Um, the execution of this transaction uh, creates a Merkle receipt. And this Merkle receipt basically is saying, here are the 0.1 ETH that are being transferred out of this shard into shard number 47 to uh, the uh, Tom's Ethereum address. So this receipt exists. Now, watch this part. The receipt exists. And if we want to make things even faster, my client can take the receipt and send it over to your client. And you can receive the receipt and you can verify that it got included in a shard block. And so even before the coin transfer has happened, your wallet learns that the coin transfer is going to happen. And so your wallet can basically show you as, a, a, as already having those coins and the payment has already been completed. So now the transfer itself based, well, is going to take a few more seconds, right? So step one, it gets included in the shard block. Step two, um, that a uh, committee signature of that shard block gets included in the beacon block. And then step three, um, in the next slot, a uh, block on shard 47 gets created, and this block can include the receipt from shard 15. Because, so because uh, that block was included in the beacon block, the, uh, the next shard block is going to be aware of the Merkle root, so it can verify the receipt, and you can process the receipt, and you now have your coins. And that's it. Wow. So, I mean, you may have answered this, but one question that comes to mind is how do all of the sh- how are all the shards aware of the receipts or the data on the other shards? Or I don't know if that's the right question to ask, but like how are they aware of everything else that's going on? Is it just like a query? Like do they query the beacon chain or are they just 
aware given everything's connected? Like, um, So basically what's happening is that because the uh, Merkle root of uh, the block and also the post state root of the block on uh, shard 15 goes into the beacon chain when you have a committee signature, the next beacon chain block is aware of both the entire contents of that shard block so, well, it like it doesn't know the the contents directly, but it knows the Merkle hash of them, right? And it's also aware of the state root, which is also a Merkle hash of like uh, basically the uh, the state after processing that block. And every shard block in the next slot is aware of the beacon chain block because the, they all point to that beacon chain block. And so every shard block in the next slot is going to see all of these Merkle roots. Now at protocol level. You're not you're not getting all of this data passed around directly, right? So if you have like a thousand crossroad transactions happening on the, this whole system every second, the beacon chain is not literally processing a thousand transactions. The beacon chain just has some Merkle roots. But as soon as every shard knows the Merkle roots of every other shard, you can supply Merkle branches, and so you can prove to the kind of code execution on one shard that some other event happened on some other shard because you have a Merkle branch that basically proves and kind of connects to the Merkle root that this is one of the events that kind of happens and got accumulated during the processing of that block. So it is kind of a slightly higher level level mechanism and it does require some kind of additional data being passed on, but it's actually not more expensive than a uh, transaction within the same shard. Okay, that's helpful. Yeah, and I'll link to the post and, and hopefully include the image of the best case use on and the exceptional case uh, in the show notes if I can, which is helpful. So, Vitalik, just switching gears a little bit, you know, it seems like there's other things that you're enabling here with your proposal. Um, so you're saying that there's um, no need for any decentralized exchanges to facilitate paying transaction fees across shards. That seems huge because there's also been a lot of discussion on DEX's scaling. Mm-hmm. Uh, Beyond beyond one shard, what does this mean, and how important is this? Well, I mean, it basically means that like there's no need for like really complicated layer two infrastructure to pay transaction fees, right? So one of the struggles that we had with um, ETH two before is that if you have ETH that's locked inside of these kind of complicated optimistic instructions. So these are the constructions that say, oh, natively, ETH is going to take six minutes to move between shards. And so we're going to basically have an economy where in order to allow uh, coins to move around faster, we'll be instead of trading coins, we'll be trading promises of coins. And the problem with this kind of architecture is that the like, unless the... Um, Blog proposers, the people making the blocks, understand like all of these different complicated protocols for making promises, and there could be many pro- many of these protocols inside of many execution environments. Then, if a user wants to do something in shard B and they're currently in shard A, well, they can move their ETH over to shard B, but that's going to take six minutes. And so, if they want to have ETH to pay for use to pay for transaction fees, that mine the block producers on that shard will understand, like they're not going to be able to move it over directly. So instead, they have to use like basically a decentralized exchange where someone else kind of lends them that ETH for the six minutes until they can natively give it to themselves. And this is kind of solves the problem, but it's just a complicated infrastructure layer, and it's 
honestly kind of a ha an ugly hack to get around the lack of uh, native uh, single select cross-shard communications. And now we have native single select cross-shard communications, so it just removes the need for that. So, I mean, decentralized exchanges are definitely going to continue to exist in general because people have a lot of need for just trading between different assets. Um, but the, and I, I know there's also been this kind of separate discussion of, oh, how do we make DEXs work well when you have people that are living on different shards? But in general, like there's, there's ways to do that. And I think like all of them also become much more efficient with these native single solid communications. We're going to continue this conversation shortly, but first some quick info for our amazing sponsor, eToro. For a lot of crypto fans, it's hard to find one place where you can trade, plan, and discuss strategy all in one place. Turns out Europe has had a platform that can do this all along. It's called eToro, and it's the world's number one social trading platform. Not only does it give you access to the most popular crypto assets on the market, but its virtual trading and discussion features let you discuss and test strategies with a community of over 11 million other traders. And the headline news is they've officially launched in the USA. To get started, visit b.tc slash reaction to make an account, or just scroll down in the show notes and click the link below. With that, let's jump back into the conversation. Vitalik, just zooming out a bit, I mean, I'm looking at the post and there's, you know, there's no proofs that I can't understand or words that I can't pronounce here. It doesn't seem like you're using any, there's no magical math here or anything like that. It seems pretty straightforward. Is there anything like insanely complex here that, you know, hasn't really been figured out yet? Or are there any assumptions you're making on tech that may have to be developed for this to work? I'm just wondering, like, if this is something to go or not. Yeah, definitely no super complicated math. Uh, like, ultimately, sharded blockchain design at some point like, is not about complicated cryptography. It's just Merkle proof engineering. And like, there are some components, like uh, data availability proofs, for example, that could require some pretty complicated things like Starks. But once uh, like, you have that substrate, then at some point, it really is just like passing Merkle proofs around. Um, the, the main kind of tech that is being assumed here that does need to get built. I mean, first of all, is good peer-to-peer -peer networking. So like, you're not going to have a single global peer-to-peer -peer network where all of the data gets passed around because that would just completely negate the gains from sharding. And so you need to have infrastructure for people to be able to just jump between these peer-to-peer -peer networks quickly. Um, another thing is that you would need to have kind of light client markets. So if you wants to learn what's going on in other shards, then uh, because you're not going to be verifying all the other shards personally, you need some kind of market structure where uh, nodes in the network that do have information that you might want can pass it along to you and get, got, and get compensated for it. And that's something that uh, Jolt Trofoldi from the Geth team has actually been doing a lot of really good work on in the context of even the existing ETH1 system. So there's a lot of uh, work there that uh, I, I think could be easily ported over. Vitalik, composability is, in my opinion, one of the best use cases for Ethereum because developers can mix and match building blocks and primitives, you know, things of that nature. Um, how does this all interact or affect composability? It sounds like at a high level, it doesn't break composability because you have these this native cross-shard communications happening, but what are your thoughts there? 
Yeah, so there's two kinds of cross-shard communications. Uh, one is asynchronous communications, where I do a thing, and then as a result of me doing a thing later on, like you on another shard uh, can do a thing. And like payment is one example of this, right? Payment is asynchronous because like I could send my payment and forget, and in the next slot you receive the payment, and that's fine. And then there's synchronous communication, and synchronous communication basically means I do a thing where I ask you for some information, you give me that information, and within the same computation, based off of that information that you give me, I do something. Um, and this natively, uh, the sharded proposal supports asynchronous cross shard communication, but synchronous communication can only be done within the same shard. Now, there are ways to uh, combine the two mechanisms and have uh, synchronous execution when you need it. And so one of these is that I wrote this uh, post uh, on E3Search about a year ago on uh, contract yanking. So if you just Google like E3Search yanking, you can probably find it. And the idea there is that if you want to kind of do some synchronous uh, operation involving some set of, uh, kind of objects that are on different shards, you would do this in two steps, where the first step is you would pull all the objects into the same shard, and that can be asynchronous. And then when they're all in the same shard, you then do another synchronous transaction that interacts with them in whatever way you want. And then if you want, you can kind of pull the, the objects back to whatever shard you came from, or you cannot do that, and you could just let the next user of those objects do that. And so with this architecture, like you can do things like uh, decentralized atomic swaps, for example, that's one of the big use cases of this. And like, so there's a lot of applications that I think will be totally fine, uh, but it's definitely true that if you want to make applications that kind of take lots of different components and get them to talk to each other, then sometimes they'll be fine, but sometimes you will have to think a bit harder because of architecture. Understood. Now that that's excellent, Carr. And Vitalik, I mean, just to zoom out, though, for those not following Ethereum well, I mean, a lot of these projects that leverage composability or are primitives of composability, like, let's say, MakerDAO to Stablecoin, all these projects still have to transfer over, say, their code to Ethereum 2.0, right? Or is that is that still the case? So there's two ways to do this, right? One way is that you like manually take your application, you move it over to Ethereum 2 ahead of time. The other possibility is that you wait until the ETH1 to ETH2 transition happens. And when that happens, basically the state root of ETH1 will just get imported into ETH2. And so all the applications that haven't yet transitioned will just be transitioned over automatically. So like even if you do nothing, your app will be kind of safe and, and continue living and eventually we'll live inside of ETH2. Understood. And Vitalik, how's the response been between, you know, like your developer circle on this? Because I know there, it just came out, there hasn't been a ton of, you know, pushback. Like, how's the vibe within your circle on your post or within the community? Like any major pushbacks or anything there? It's been very positive. I think like, people are generally quite happy with it. And I mean, I definitely expected like a bit of pushback because there's slight losses in scalability and slight increases in beacon chain load, but like, not really. Like, people seem very happy with a single slot uh, interest uh, cross shard communications. Vitalik, I just one other question for you, just zooming out. I mean, there's like 
I don't know, 12 to 20 new layer ones launching with smart contract functionality over the next, you know, zero to 24 months. Um, some raised a ton of money, some haven't, some have a lot of dev activity, some don't. But a lot of their selling points are that they have better tech, but a lot of those founders kind of forget that they need to build a community and have strong network effects around this. But do you think that between your post and ETH2 gaining traction and you know optimistic rollups, do you think that kind of puts an axe on some of these projects that are trying to compete based on you know quote unquote better tech? Yeah, I definitely think that the scaling stuff is uh, going to kind of make a, a lot of the FUD fall flat on its face uh, very quickly. To some extent, it started happening already. Like, There's definitely fewer people that are saying that like proof of stake and sharding can't happen. And now the, the narrative is that proof of stake and sharding like, can happen, but like, the Ethereum team specifically will be too slow in implementing it. And I mean, that, that already is like a huge step forward compared to the status quo three years ago, where like proof of work and non-sharded blockchains were in many cases viewed as kind of the only way to do things. And from there, I mean, all the, the Ethereum community has to do, I think, is to just like, deliver. And I mean, there's been some delivery already, like, for example, the optimistic roll-up demo uh, from uh, Plasma Group, the Unipig exchange uh, at, at DEF CON, I think, was uh, a really good demonstration of um, optimistic roll-up and really helped make a lot of people more confident about the technology. So I think if we can kind of keep convincing people that the stuff is real and it's not just ideas and it's code and it's right there and you can look at it and eventually it's a live network. I think we can survive this and the narrative a year from now will be very different. Yeah, for sure. Definitely agreed on continuous progress, kind of convincing people. And EIP-1559, you mentioned it earlier. Do you think this is something that can get included in the next update or do you think there's a lot of buzz around this? I know, I think Eric Connor championed this a couple months ago, kind of fell through a little bit, and now it's kind of getting revived a bit. Yeah, and I think the problem with the IP1559 is that it's this kind of subtle change in economics, um, and the reasons of why it's important are kind of fairly obscure and technocratic, and so it's not the sort of thing that you can easily create a meme around in the same way you can around, like, oh, data is going to be four times cheaper, or oh, we support four times more elliptic curves now. But the impact is very significant, and I think like a lot of people are realizing this. And now I think it's just a matter of like coming up with a version of the proposal that's kind of practically implementable, and then like choosing what hard fork to um, implement it and hope it gets out there soon. Yeah, definitely look for an update. And the other question is on the fee market. Um, you may have addressed this, but is each shard going to have its own fee market? And then I guess the other question that kind of builds on that is. You know, there's obviously a lot of buzz around like block space scarcity. And I'm kind of wondering like if we have too many, too much transaction throughput, does that kind of hurt the value prop a bit? Like I know it obviously drives a ton of projects to be viable built on top, but I'm just wondering if that kind of impacts the economics or, or your thinking there. Yeah, there's definitely going to be different fee markets uh, on uh, different shards. And I expect it to generally equilibrate because there's a lot of applications that can fairly easily just move to whatever shards are cheaper. But like, if there are single apps that run on specific shards and sometimes those single apps get a lot of usage, then 
it's very possible that there's just going to be periods where some shards get more expensive. And I, and I think that's fine. And I think in general, like, transaction fees are going to be considerably lower than they were historically. So you know, transaction fee volatility is something that people are used to. And I think as a whole, especially with AIP 1559, it's something that's going to go down. In like in the longer term, you can look at kind of higher level mechanisms like part of execution environments or whatever else that can try to kind of automate load balancing between shards more. And that's never going to succeed entirely because you could just have like single threaded applications that have high demand for usage, but it it could easily be something that makes things better on the margin. Vitalik, one uh, you know, more personal question. I'll I'll give you two questions you can answer whichever one you want or both the first one is um do you actually believe in aliens stealing this one from pomp or if you had to pick a project outside of ethereum to work on which would it be so you can answer one or both your choice hmm and i think in outside of uh, ethereum you know i i'm obviously interested in kind of radical exchange stuff, so kind of quadratic voting, quadratic funding, decentralized governance mechanisms, and all of the ideas around that. And I mean, fortunately, that stuff is not mutually exclusive with Ethereum, and there's actually a lot of synergies, like, uh, as we've seen with uh, Gitcoin grants being used to fund Ethereum projects. And, and in my opinion, the last round was even really successful. So it's also in this kind of economics and decentralization theme, but approaching it from a uh, kind of much different angle um as far as aliens go it's it's hard to tell like the problem is that there's just like so many unknowns that we're totally not aware of and if we want to figure out like the probability that aliens exist we have to take all these unknowns and try to multiply them and try to see if the number is closer to zero or one and and like our ability to make good answers on these kinds of questions tends to be difficult. So it's very possible that we'll just continue not knowing until either we actually see some kind of life somewhere on other planets, like even just seeing bacteria somewhere in the, else in the solar system that's not from earth would just be a huge piece of evidence and or we just see more and more things and we realize more and more that we could just be alone in the universe. Do you and, think we live inside a uh, inside a simulation or do you think that might just uh be some fun? Um I have no idea. Vitalik, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate um you coming on on such short notice. It's literally, you know, no prep time. This is, you know, a, like a few minutes after I DM'd you. So I really appreciate that. No, thank you. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you can go to iTunes and hit subscribe to the Chain Reaction podcast, it'll go a long way in helping us reach new listeners and help support the show. Thanks again.